Blog Talk Radio. Hall. 
way. <laughs> so that was the one and only Leslie Hoffman in the 1984 horror classic, Nightmare on Elm Street. And in honor of Halloween, Leslie, I just thought I would just have you just say that classic line for us one more time live on the radio for everybody, if you don't mind. (laughs) I'm not sure which one's the classic line. I mean, the one I said was, where's your pass? (laughs) And then then, uh, Wes had me say, Hey Nancy, no running in the hallway, he he he. So Robert Englund could, you know, dub his voice in over mine. But yeah, uh, but we 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 love it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no. It, if I'm at a convention and and people recognize me, <laughs> it's gonna be one of those. Well. uh it's either going to be where's your pass, screw your pass, or no running in the hallway. I mean, uh, just like just like Will Wheaton is uh, tagged with "shut up with Wesley," <laughs> well, I'm tagged with those those lines. Well, you actually you you actually did say the full line in the movie. It was just that. Robert England overdubbed the last part, but you actually did say it. your mouth was moving. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, no. Uh, in fact, um, like I say, uh, Wes Craven to me was one of the best directors that I ever worked with. I worked with him actually on three movies, and he he always was so polite. He after the shot, he would thank you for it. I mean, most directors go, you know, next next shot, let's move move the cameras, whatever, you know, and you're just standing there. (laughs) You know, they're done with you. Goodbye. (laughs) But but uh, no, he came he came up to me just before we filmed uh, the, uh, you know, the hallway scene. And he said, Leslie, I just, I want you to know right now, your voice is not going to be in the final, you know, the final movie. Uh, I just need you to say the line. So, I don't even think he said Robert Anglin. He said, so the actor can, you know, I need your mouth moving, saying the, the line, but I'm telling you now. You know the actor is going to dub in his voice, so your voice is not and going to be heard in in the final cut in the movie. And and he just, I mean, it almost sounded like he was asking for forgiveness the way he he was saying it to me. And I don't know, being a stunt woman, being told that my voice isn't going to be in the final cut didn't really make a big difference to me. Maybe maybe if I was an actress, I might have been offended. But, but to have him say that to me was like, mm, okay, <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, in honor of Halloween, I just had to touch on that and uh, get that out there for everybody because next time we talk, it'll be after Halloween. So I just want to have a little bit of fun with that. I like to I like to play that when I can. And when I had an opportunity, I jumped on it. So thank you for sharing that with us, Leslie. Yeah. I mean the other thing that I I well I'll try to be brief about it is I never realized that that scene, that whole scene is probably uh I forget, like 18 or 19 seconds long and I've had people come up to me saying I I <laughs> strange the name of the movie's Nightmare on Elm Street I've had people come up to me saying I had nightmares uh after I saw that scene 
I mean, they just did not expect Robert Englund's voice to come out of my mouth. I mean, maybe maybe they really were too young to to see this movie because I mean to well, well actually now I'm going to make the story a little longer. <laughs> um, you know, they just weren't expecting to hear a voice a different or to hear his voice come out of my mouth and it just it terrorized them um anyways so now I'm, I'll quickly do this other story is that uh Tom my my stunt buddy was stunt doubling uh Jeff Jeff Goldberg well I hope I just, on um Great. Now I just lost. Uh, oh, it was uh, Jurassic Park two, when when the trailer was like hanging over the edge of the cliff or something. Um, <laughs> now, in the first, well, any t- uh, he doubled Jeff in Ghostbusters, and they thought he was a perfect double. Um, uh. Boy, like I say, now my 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 mouth is going faster than my brain is going. Uh, Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, took one look at Tom and he thought that Tom was an awful double for Jeff. So much so that they made a prosthetic, fa- full face mask that they glued to Tom's face every day that he was stunt doubling Jeff. Um, but on Friday, they, or this one particular Friday, they were having, uh, well, they were calling it Ugly Jacket Day, and they were talking, a lot of productions would would make production jackets. Uh, so Tom called me up and asked me if I could grab, actually, well, he doubled Jeff on 10 Speed and Brown Shoe. And Tom called me up and said, can you go to my, you know, apartment and grab my 10-speed and brown shoe production jacket because I'd like to wear it today, you know, ugly jacket day. I'd like to wear it because I want Jeff to see it. And, you know, fine, okay. So so I grab the jacket. I get to Universal Studios now it's a closed set so I can't get on the set but he knew you know we he knew what approximate timing I would be showing up and I'm walking towards the sound stage and this person walks towards me and he starts talking to to me and it's Tom's voice now this is really funny because Tom is a Klingon or Jemadar or whatever. That never bothered me. But here was this face, this human face to me, and I'm hearing Tom's voice coming out of this human face that clearly was not Tom. And I'll tell you, I think I had the same reaction that these kids are talking about when Robert Englund comes out of my mouth. I mean... I I still will sometimes have nightmares of this strange human being talking to me and I'm hearing Tom's voice and and in my mind I'm going that's not Tom or <laughs> so so it's really interesting how just something slightly off can can really throw a person well, Nightmare on Elm Street <laughs> gave me nightmares, but, uh, I mean, when I went to see it it, it, it was like, wow. I mean, I slept with the lights on. That was a scary movie if you saw that back in the day. But, at any rate, I just wanted to, to give you some kudos on your Nightmare on Elm Street stint because course, Karen and Jamie of course, of course, people, are sitting. Of course, people, of course, people tell me all the time I have a face for radio. Uh, that that is that's very true, Ken. I I agree. I agree with that. <laughs> but 
Karen, Karen and Jamie are sitting in the other room right now watching A Nightmare on Elm Street. So I had to, I had to bring that up. So let's go. Let's get all the way back to the beginning of the show, and we're going to talk about Star Trek: The Original Series and how well has it aged. So let's start off okay. with the fact that. Yep. Go ahead. Oh, okay. So, so it was kind of interesting is that uh, this week I was looking, you know, I'm on different Star Trek sites on Facebook, and and someone posted something like, is it me or am I the only one that can't stand TOS? And, you know, some people, I forget, you know, I don't know what some other people wrote, but but it kind of made me want to, well, I did, I did post it. I said, I said, you know, if, if there had never been a TOS, if there had never been an original Star Trek, there'd be no other Star Trek movies. So, so I guess, I mean, it, it, it just was kind of amazing to hear. I mean, everybody has their opinions. Everybody has their order of which series they like best or which movies they like best. But but to have someone say that, you know, they, they could ap- absolutely live without uh, the original series, they're taking into account that if the original series had never aired, there wouldn't be any other Star Trek move or series or movies. So <laughs> it just was it was and just it, kind and of were odd. Ball, were it not for Lucille Ball, there wouldn't have been an original uh, series either. I mean, you know. Yeah. He's the it, last it, person you'd necessarily uh, associate with Star Trek. Right. People yeah. don't realize that uh, Lucio Ball, or, well, Desi Arnaz Lucio Ball, which was Desi Lu Productions, uh, she liked the idea. You know, Gene Roddenberry uh, presented the idea to them, or her, and she liked the idea. I mean, I, uh, I've never read whether she liked the first pilot or she liked the second pilot or she just liked the whole concept but um if if Lucio Ball had not said I want this you know for Desi Lu production that also means we wouldn't have had Star Trek so so it's pretty I guess I guess we all really do I love Lucy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was. Well, I'll, I'll say one thing. Um, my wife Karen hates TOS. She can't stand it. My daughter Jamie thinks it's cheap and cheesy, and she won't watch it. Um, I might, I might be able to get Jamie or Karen to watch one of the movies, maybe Star Trek Four, maybe Star Trek Six, or something like that. Um, but they don't like the original series, um, you know. But we talked, we touched on this a little bit on another show when we were talking about old movies and things of that nature. I think that it depends on who yeah. you're talking to as to how they feel about a particular movie. For instance, I love Flash Gordon and. I think the 1980 Flash Gordon music by Queen Flash ah, <laughs> is the best Flash Gordon they'll make. I don't care about the Buster Crab uh, black and white serial version. I just Bite your don't tongue. care. I, Bite your tongue. It, to, me, to me, it's Sam Jones and music by Queen. Um, to somebody else, it might be different. Um, so I think it's all a matter of perspective and a matter of taste. Personally. Well, it's a matter of taste. It's a matter of the time period you grew up in. It's like, uh, you know, this morning, well, the weekend, they show uh, Superman, The Adventures of Superman. 
and and I just love watching George Reeves being Superman. I mean, uh, yeah, Christopher Reeves was Superman, and there's been other Superman, but but the television show was just as a kid to see this guy <laughs> go flying through the air. I know it was silly that that they could fire bullets at him, but if they threw a gun at him, he'd duck. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Actually, I saw I actually saw an episode um where they did hit him with the gun, or you know, they threw the gun and it bounces off his shoulder. But but more often he would duck <laughs> when the gun came at him. Yeah, well, and, I and Leslie, was... I think in general, in general, I think the point you made, Leslie, is something that I think a lot of us forget, especially the new people forget. <laughs> you don't have the future without the past. I mean, in Star Trek, in Battlestar Galactica. In Lost in Space, in in Thunderbirds are go. If you don't have the first thing, you don't have the new thing. Yeah, and I don't. I mean, a lot uh, of the fans don't understand that, or or can't comprehend that, or or don't realize that. Yeah, you know, these mean, things well, are not well, I'll, created I'll, in I'll a vacuum. I'll stick it in early. I mean, without the 1968 Planet of the Apes, you wouldn't have the sequels, you wouldn't have the remakes, you know, you you wouldn't have Planet of the Apes either. And we you wouldn't can't have the television have show. Planet of the Apes. We, we, we need Planet of the Apes. Come on. For another episode, yes. Right. We Somehow. Can't, we can't have a show without saying Planet of the Apes. <laughs> um, and and uh, but, Oddly enough, I'm going to throw another Planet of the Apes reference in here. I was going to sneak it in later, but since you snuck it in early, uh, this week is James Daly's birthday, who played Mr. Flint on Star Trek, but he also played on uh, uh, Planet of the Apes in the original Planet of the Apes. He was one of the orangutans that was um, was on the board that determined that Charlton Heston was guilty. He was one of Dr. Zayas's sidekicks in Planet of the Apes. Right. So, happy birthday to James Daly. So that, there you have it. My Planet of the Apes birthday. <laughs> but yeah, no, anyways. I, but I, well, I loved him in Planet of the Apes, but but also, see, like you say, I'm an original Trekkie, and and. Uh, his his the way he played uh Mr. Flint was was just amazing. I mean um what an amazing actor. I mean well I've <laughs> I, I I love him in the episode. You know the funniest thing I'm I'm not sure if it's that episode but but I think they use the same matte drawing of his house and the castle that's in um, the cage, the menagerie. I I'm not sure, but I think it's the same matte drawing. I think you're right. I, I think ha- you're right. I'd have to look it up. No, I think you're right. I remember seeing because yeah, I think you're right. But here's the thing with Star Trek, and, and this is the thing that, this is the biggest thing, I think, with Star Trek. Because um, I was talking to somebody on um, another Trek board that I visit all the time, and a very similar comment came up, only it was just the opposite. Uh, this person <clears throat> hated Discovery, hates Picard, hates the 2009 movies, hates any Star Trek that was made after 1990 because it's not Star Trek. And people today don't know what Star Trek is. They don't understand it, and they're all a bunch of hacks. And I think it it comes down to this. This is what I told this woman, is that for me, I was born three months before Star Trek aired in 1966. So when I say I watched it my whole life, that's really for real. Star Trek is, is based on a simple premise. 
that every single Star Trek series, whether you like it or not, whether you like the look of the Klingons, the look of the uniforms, the, the lens flares, it doesn't matter. It violates canon. Uh, whatever reason you want to pick to hate on it, it's irrelevant. Every Star Trek is based on a simple philosophy of the Idic. Infinite diversity and infinite combinations. And every Star Trek has that at its core. And every single Star Trek has at its core the United Federation of Planets and the morals, the values, the ethics of the Federation are in every single Star Trek, starting with TOS right up to Discovery of today. And it's that boom, cut and dry. That's the bottom line. And we can talk about, um, you know, you know how the yeah, CGI no, looks different you. today. We can talk about uh, the makeup. We can talk about uh, any of the issues that we want. But at its core, all Star Trek is about that. Star Trek gives us moral and ethical dilemmas, and we can look at them in a mirror. We can look at ourselves. If you look at TOS, a lot of those episodes revolved around the Vietnam War and about racism and about the things that were really big in the 60s. We even had an episode of TOS with hippies. Jamie has no idea what a hippie is. This doesn't even cross her mind. So Star Trek is very dated. And I think that a lot of people that don't like TOS don't understand exactly what it is, the message that TOS was sending, because that message is different today than it was in the 60s. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like like the episode uh, with the hippies. I mean, today that that makes absolutely no sense at all to anybody because hippies looking for Eden, I mean, what are you talking about? But in the late 60s, a bunch of hippies, you know, uh, calling someone a Herbert or something like that, those the people watching back then – would know about hippies, would know about, uh, what what should I call them, free thinkers or something, or whatever you want to call it. But it but it just doesn't make any sense today. Something from the 60s to 2020 does not make any sense anymore. It's dated. No, it, it's, it's dated, but that doesn't change the message. That's in, I mean, I could say, I mean, you know, Captain Kirk, uh, first of all, they had an interracial crew, which was unthought of in the 60s. We had an Asian. We had a black woman. You know, we had a Scotsman as an engineer. We even had a Russian in season two. We had an alien. But they were all overseen by a white guy that chased women in miniskirts. You know, very, very dated <laughs> ideals. But... <laughs> But, right. Well, that's but that's true about that's the crazy thing is that well, other than belly buttons, belly buttons are 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 no no. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, you think about I Dream of Jeannie, uh, the cat suit that Batgirl wore in uh, Batman, um, several costumes, even in the original Star Trek. Were were pretty revealing. I mean, for that time period. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, you can't. People today, I, I've said this on our on our Trek talking show before. People will actually say they don't like the new Star Trek because they're too political, and they don't like it. And I say, excuse me, have you ever watched Star Trek before? Because if you're going to tell me that, that Star Trek isn't political, then I think you're crazy and you've never watched it. You mean to tell me that the first interracial kiss on Star Trek was not a politically charged issue in the 60s? <laughs> I would disagree oh, with yeah. you very strongly yeah. on that topic. Star Trek was always political. It's just that the politics yeah. of the 60s are not the politics of today. So when people watch it, they don't see those issues as political because they're in the past. 
But Star Trek always danced around political issues. That's what made it so special and so unique. Right. Well, I mean, sort of building on what you're saying, I mean, of course there couldn't be, I'll say, gay, lesbian couples in the in the original Star Trek, but you get to Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, now all of a sudden you have episodes of, like I say, uh, same sex, or and and no one's thinking twice about it anymore because that's a current issue. Well, you may have Bible thumpers, or or well, I shouldn't. Sorry if that was not politically correct, but you may have thinkers that no matter what year it's going to be. Uh, you know, uh, it's abomination to God that that there should be same sex. Well, since we're talking about TOS, let's talk about let's talk about the elephant in the room, and let's talk about women women's rights. Because I remember an interview with Gene Roddenberry, because everybody knows he married Major Barrett Roddenberry, and she was number one in the original Star Trek. Um, right. She didn't make it and into the second pilot. Like but, it. Right, because a woman, people couldn't, wouldn't believe a woman in charge. So they got rid of her, right. and they gave that job to Spock, and she became a nurse because women could handle, men could, people could handle <laughs> a woman as a nurse in the 60s. So, And Gene Roddenberry uh, actually said that he had to fight to get women on the crew of the Starship Enterprise back in the 60s. And that's something that we don't even think about today. To today, that's not an issue. But in the 60s, having oh, yeah. women no, serving on the – it was an issue. If anything, Discovery – to me, Discovery is so uh, – what should I say? Woman-friendly that these women can be the absolute villain or the absolute uh, hero or – or the, or what I love is that that they'll they'll beat up <laughs> they'll beat up other women they'll beat up men I mean they're uh, I mean it, it it just isn't even a question anymore and it used to be oh my God, such a question oh my God or an did issue you see, yeah did you see the latest episode of Discovery where Giorgio played by Michelle Yeoh just goes absolutely bat crap crazy and kicks the crap out of five guys in a bar. Did you see that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I love it. I, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love Michelle Yeoh. We are so fortunate as Star Trek fans to have her involved in Star Trek because we get to watch her every week, and she's a phenomenal actress. And boy, does she know how to fight. I mean, I love that scene. And the guy had a gun, and she's like, I don't care. I'm going to kill you anyways. And she did. Phenomenal. You would never see something like that in the 60s. Right. You just wouldn't. She's the ultimate villain. I mean, (laughs) or you don't know which way she's going, but, but, you know, she's the ultimate villain. She wants, she wants... Full control, and she's not afraid to say that, you know, she's planning on getting full control one way, one way or the other. <laughs> oh, she she's just incredible, uh, you know. Yeah. And that's the type that's the type of role that I think Major Barrett made possible, and Gene Roddenberry made possible in the '60s is that kind of role that Michelle Yeoh has on Discovery today. If it wasn't for you know, Michelle Nichols and Majel Barrett in the 60s forging that path, we wouldn't have Michelle Yeoh kicking the crap out of five dudes in a bar. Right. Yeah. You know? Well, so, you know, another thing about NBC is they wanted to airbrush uh, Spock's ears. They They thought he looked too much like the devil, and the public would just hate an alien, you know, especially with the pointed ears. I mean, you, you know, you you just don't know what the, uh, what should I call it, the head people. I mean, 
You know, in other words, Lucille Ball was um, like the head of of Desilu production, but you still got to sell it to the network, NBC, and NBC could have quashed, you know, obviously Lucille Ball was persistent enough. I, I don't know. Maybe she had to make a deal, you know. Uh, I'm not going to let you show this Desilu production if you don't show Star Trek. You know, you don't. We don't know that part of the story anymore. There's a lot of wheeling and dealing between networks and production companies. I mean, that's what they call. Well, that's part of this thing called packaging. Well, Lucy Ball, um, usually, the, the I Love Lucy show was huge back back then. I mean, she was the ultimate superstar, Lucy Ball. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think you'd so, want to cross her. I mean, no. all you'd have to do is she was like, say something that she absolutely would hate, and she'd say, okay, I guess we aren't going to do I Love Lucy anymore or any of the other Lucy shows she did afterwards. And, I think she and was no the Oprah Winfrey of the 60s. That I, you know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think that um, – and that's just the other thing. Let, let's look at, for a minute, let's take a look at the makeup and, and, the, and the effects that in TOS. And, of course, I'm a huge Klingon fan. And here you have guys with handlebar mustaches and shoe polish on their faces and they're wearing gold-painted bubble wrap for belt buckles, and this is a Klingon. And everyone yeah. was cool with that. Uh, you know, and then the motion picture and TNG and all these other, and they had more money and more technology, so they made the Klingons look more alien than just a guy with shoe polish on his face. Me, personally, I can accept that because I realized that TOS was made 55 years ago. And I, you can't expect effects from 55 years ago to be the same as they are today. They're going to change. They're going to improve. They're going to be different. I just accept that. Some fans yeah. cannot accept that. They just can't. So, yeah. you know, well, you so, have to look at well, it as a 55-year-old TV show and take it for for that. Well, it's amazing. It's amazing on these websites that they talk about these shows as if they were, uh, well, I got to say current, like like they were shot yesterday. I mean, how old is William Shatner now? 86, I but, think. Maybe? Yeah, I mean, how old was he when in 1960-whatever? <laughs> I mean, I, it's so strange for me to read some of these uh, remarks by... Uh, uh, fans. I mean, I'm glad they're fans, but it's so amazing that that you know these fans are talking as if as if he's still you know whatever twenty uh, something thir- early thirty something years old. Yeah, they want William. They want they want Captain Kirk to come back and make an appearance. On you know on a show and it's like excuse me but William Shatner's 86 years old uh, he was 30 something when they did TOS how could you possibly have William Shatner reprise his role as Captain Kirk on Star Trek Discovery 55 years later and have it be believable and not laughable uh, without a total like, CGI makeover it's like in tweet, you know? on Twitter, yeah. one of the criticisms they have is that disco doesn't fit the timeline. And I wrote, yeah, that's a big and one. I wrote, and I wrote back, and I said, "Well, hold on a second here." I said, "It does because the Enterprise is back with Captain Pike, not Captain Kirk." And I said, "Before the Enterprise has Captain Kirk." It's not now 900 and something years in the future. So, yes, it does fit in the timeline because by the time Kirk rolls around, uh, Discovery is already in the future. Yeah. Well, I, uh, and they, you just reminded and they me of do. something else. Uh, I read on the website, this was maybe three weeks ago, 
was someone was complimenting Shatner on, and he still has a full head of hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How many two pays ago? Scale of one to ten, pays. But you know, back to your point, Ken. I think I think that the the people on Discovery did something brilliant and something that I I just I love, and that was when Captain Pike went back to Talos Four to get the time crystal, that whole episode, they actually started the episode with clips from the cage. And, and they, they showed you all the original clips from the cage. And then with, with Jeffrey Hunter as Pike, and then they go up to the enterprise and they zoom in on the enterprise and Pike morphs from Jeffrey Hunter into Anson Mao. To, as like, okay, people, to, to end that whole thing, yes, this character right here is Jeffrey Hunter, Captain Pike, and here it is. End of story. And I thought that was just a brilliant way to put an end to all this alternate universe. It's not Star Trek. It's not real stuff. Well, guess what? Here it is. And I thought that was brilliant, the way they morphed uh, Jeffrey Hunter into Anson Mount. I thought that was a brilliant yeah. move by their half. Because I yeah. love no, Pike. Pike yeah. is my... And again, the, the 900 years into the future uh, bit uh, pretty much eliminates any... Well, it's not canon. Uh, it, it, what do you mean it's not canon? It's in the future. Of course it's canon. Yeah. Well, what makes me yeah. laugh about all of that, Ken, is that ever since uh, Voyager, all the fans have been crying and whining that why don't they make a show in the future? Why why do they keep going backwards with every show? You know, and here they make a show in the future, and they still don't like it because it's too far into the future. But because, I do want to say one thing about you, that, right? The, because you're never going to please everybody. That's true. But here's here's my point that I that I want to make and why I think it's that what they did with Discovery is is absolutely brilliant, and that is this. I've been watching Star Trek for 55 years, and I you know when they make a mistake, I catch it. I know what a Klingon is, and I know what an Andorian is, and I know what a Denobian is, and I know all that because I've read every book, every comic book, I've been to all the conventions, blah 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 blah. So for them to do something new and different and unique and, and actually impress me is really hard to do. By putting it 938 years in the future, guess what, guys? All of us get to go to school again. All of us as Star Trek fans get to boldly go where no fan has gone before, and we get to explore strange new worlds and, and new civilizations just like they did back with the original show. Everything is new, everything is different, and we have to learn the ropes and the rules just like we did in the 60s. So it's a, it's a great way to introduce a whole new world and, and, and excitement into Star Trek again that hasn't been there in a long time. So I think what they did was brilliant. But anyways, let's, let's go back to TOS and talk a little bit about some of the special effects that they did back in the 60s. Well, um, let me let me let me go all the way back and I'll I'll do it really fast is that originally the 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 original movies uh people were free to film every anything they wanted except that uh um, this person decided that that it was immoral some of some of the like nineteen twenty films, so they invented the Hayes Act is what it was called um and especially because of this Tarzan movie, the original Tarzan movie, there was a scene where jean Jane is swimming nude in the water, and that that really 
put a kibosh on it. So this Kazakh came into beating, being, and in fact, it was so crazy that the Hayes Act, the cartoon character, Betty Boop, her skirt was too short, and they forced the company to draw a cartoon with longer skirts for Betty Boop. Um, hmm. And, of course, uh, no interracial couples uh, uh, without consequences. Uh, a couple movies were made that way. Uh, villains could not win in a movie back then. They had to pay for their crime. So they get shot or something would happen that they get arrested. I mean, in fact, movies would be made that uh let's say the the so called bad guy got away with it. Uh, you know, they used to have screening back then. They this Hayes Act would make them film a new ending where the criminal either gets killed or arrested or something like that. Um, this went on for 40 years until the 60s. Uh, like I say, you never saw I Dream of Jeannie's belly button because I don't understand. I still don't understand why a belly button is forbidden. But <laughs> um, the the wizard. Okay, here's an example of a film that would not have aged well. The Wizard of Oz, which is a classic, 1939. They had a song originally called The Jitterbug. It still exists today. You can see it on YouTube. But luckily, uh, during um, a showing or some exec decided that The Jitterbug dated the film because... I mean, how many people know about the jitterbug or the dance? I mean, it was a very popular dance back then. They cut that out of The Wizard of Oz, and it's a good thing they did because it would have dated the film. Um, okay, so now we come up to the special effects in the 60s. Okay, so then you had costumes. Uh, the be You don't have a computer back then, so the costumes were like these zipped-up, bulky costumes, like like the gremlin in uh, Twilight Zone, you know, the Shatner episode. I mean, that, oh, well, going back to Wizard of Oz, the lion's uh, costume weighed about 80 pounds. Uh, same thing for the gremlin in uh, the Twilight Zone. Uh, I see that you're going to have Sandy Gimpel um, on, and she was the salt monster in the man trap. I mean, that was a big, bulky suit that zipped up, or or I keep forgetting the name of the the white ape with the with the uh, spikes on it. You know, I mean, that was the best they could do for aliens other than what you said about the Klingons or whatever, or or Frank Gorshin, you know, where they painted him half white and half black. Um, I mean, that was the best they could do. If you're going to be an alien, we'll paint you a different color. Um, well, don't forget the biggest thing, Leslie, speaking of color... Star Trek was one of the first major shows filmed in color, and they took advantage of that. Right, right. That that was the big thing is that Star Trek was supposed to help uh, make the public buy color television sets. So they, so that's why the the costumes were so colorful, or or even though the. Uh, set itself was so plain, which like I've talked about this before when they did trials and tribulations, and I walked on the set, and here's this, I mean it's absolutely bare set, bare walls, you know some tables, but 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 no decorations, and and uh, it was because back then. Uh, the original Star Trek, they just used colored lights that they would shine against the walls to to give this color. They didn't, you know, they just, 
didn't have the decorations or the multi. It was a lot cheaper to to shine a purple light on the wall than to try to create colorful. I don't know what whatever you want to call it, designs. Um, well, okay, quickly going back. Back in the fifties, sixties, family shows had to be wholesome. Uh, they did allow single parent shows, you know, like uh, uh, the Andy Griffith show, but but the adults in the show had to be respected. I mean, it, it wasn't until you got till like All in the Family, Sanford and Sons. I mean, we're talking more in the 70s and 80s. Then all of a sudden, uh, all um, uh, married with children. It's when they started making fun of the of the parents of a family. But before then, you couldn't do that. That was the Hayes Act. Um, Okay, so oh, oh well, we we kind of talked about this already. Is that again? There was no computer effects, so um, you had matte paintings. Like we we already talked about the castles in the background, or or whatever. I mean that that was how you ended up on a different planet. Was was there was a painting behind these people? Um, Let's see. Uh, well, really, um, I'm, I'm, I'm right. Uh, this part really does. I, I just had to say this is that uh, for some reason in the original Star Trek, well, even it, uh, it happened in Deep Space Nine. It's it, it other than uh, O'Brien. It seemed like you couldn't get married without without the other person dying. I mean, you know, this side of paradise when when Kirk was Kirok, um, you know, his wife had to die at the end of the show. Uh for the world is hollow, uh bones. I I think he did marry the the, the priestess but but then they decided that they should go her separate ways. She should go with her people to the new planet. And Bones got cured of this incurable disease, and he goes back to the ship. Um, so that that's just something that I observed. But then Jedzer got killed in in Deep Space Nine. But that I still say that was a compute a, a contract. Negotiation, you know. Sorry, you're gone. <laughs> but uh, well, Cisco's wife died on Deep Space Nine in the first episode. You know, Jean-Luc Picard's entire family died. Riker and Troy did get married though in the movies, and we did see them on Picard with a daughter. So that that that's one. Um, but yeah, yeah, it doesn't happen on Star Trek very often. They're mostly single parents. Beverly Crusher's husband d- didn't have a husband. He had died. <laughs> right. You know? I mean, that's what's... Uh, other, other than O'Brien, I don't know of any other married couple that comes to mind real Let's say a lead person that, or or even a co-lead person having having a wife uh, or or a spouse it just for some reason <laughs> star trek is not into married couples i don't well nog 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 mary or not nog ra mary lita on deep space 9 um and but yeah kirk, uh, kirk Kirk's wife, yeah. Carol Marcus, they got divorced, and, and uh, David got right. killed. Spock and his wife had a little spat, and Spock divorced her. <laughs> um. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about this. Well, and, and then, okay, so so we're kind of up. To, I'm looking at my cheat notes. Some of this we already spoke about. It wasn't. It wasn't until John Chambers came along with his prosthetics, 
who created Spock's ears and did, we got to say it again, Planet of the Apes makeup. He won a special yeah. Oscar because, because he so amazed the industry with the Planet of the Apes makeup. There was no category for special makeup. There was a category for makeup. There was no category that really covered what he did in, in Planet of the Apes, that they actually created a special Oscar that year, 1968, for John Chambers. It wasn't – actually, it was years later until they finally created a special makeup category. Um so, well, uh, and and we are running out of time real quick, is that, uh, so in closing, um, some movies age really well. Some movies, you got you to gotta forgive. It, they get time. Do you know, I, I, you, like I love watching Turner classic movies, is that, you know, some of these movies say, hey, Mom, it's 1958, <laughs> you know. It's a new world, <laughs> and and you gotta kind of laugh at it. You gotta accept the movie for when it was made. Um, but but just ending the original Star Trek was amazing for the time period it was filmed in. Many of the storylines uh, was well. We all I'm kind of repeating what we already said. Many of the storylines took on what was happening in the world at that time. We we were really lucky to have Gene Roddenberry, Lucille Ball, uh, to thank for creating Star Trek or allowing Star Trek to exist. And I feel Gene's son, Gene Jr., or maybe he's just called Gene now since Gene the original Gene has gone on has gone on to the stars. But uh, I I think Gene Jr. I think his son is doing a absolutely wonderful job on Star Trek that we have now. I mean I enjoyed the cartoon, I enjoyed Discovery, and I'm I'm always grateful for Star Trek. And with that, hour has flown by. Can you believe it? <laughs> Wow. It sure has. Well, that I just, went by <laughs> real quick. It, it always does. It's amazing. So I want to make sure, I want to tell everybody to have a safe and happy Halloween uh, because next time you talk to us, we'll be after Halloween. So please stay safe on Halloween. And just remember, there's no running in the hallway. <laughs> and uh, I want to take a moment to let you guys know that Thursday night, I'm Trek Talking. We'll be talking about Star Trek Discovery, Episode 2, Far From Home. Tune in and check that out with us, please. Please visit us on our Facebook page, the Leslie Hoffman Appreciation Organization, and just drop by and say hello. We'd love to hear from you. Leslie would love to hear from you. I also want to say thank you to the one and only Leslie Hoffman for making this show possible. We couldn't do the show without you, Leslie, so thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Like I say, I look forward to Sundays. I love talking about I love talking about film, television, and especially Star Trek. It's always fun. And Planet of the Apes. <laughs> and Planet of the Apes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And of course I, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to the Admiral. It would have been amazing to work on. Uh, I I would have preferred the the movie. I don't know if I would have preferred the television show. I guess I guess it would have been fun to work at least an episode of Planet of the Apes that way. That would have been cool. Uh, it, the, unfortunately, most of the movies were before I got into the industry. Well, we'll just have to settle for Nightmare on Elm Street and Star Trek, I guess, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, I also want to say thank you to the Admiral himself. Thank you for joining us tonight, Ken. Yeah, not a problem. And, of course, I'm your host, Uncle Jim. And 
We'll be back with you next Sunday for another episode of Stunt Trek. And in honor of the original Star Trek, I'm going to close out the show with this uh, opening from the original Star Trek by William Shatner. Stay safe, everybody. Be good to each other, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Good night. Good night. Space, a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life, and new civilizations to boldly go where no man has gone before. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.